You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. God didn't forsake them. That's a but God statement. But God didn't forsake them. They were slaves. Just like we were slaves to sin. But God didn't forsake us either. While we were yet sinners, he sent Jesus Christ to the cross. So that we could be freed from that slavery. So we could be freed from the bondage. Same thing's happening here. God extended his mercy. He extended his grace and guided them on their four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. So Ezra humiliation was the start of restoration for the people. One of the best interjections in our faith is the two words, but God. No matter how bad we think our sin might be, He is there to pour out His grace and mercy. But God. Pastor Dave mentions this same redemption in the story of Ezra as he caught the people of Israel in their own disobedience against God. Today, don't let the setbacks keep you away from a God ready to set you free. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Ezra chapter 10 as he begins his message. Being obedient to God is sometimes difficult. You are Ezra, as you know, we studied, has finally arrived in Jerusalem. It's been 60 some odd years since the very first group of captives left Babylon. And during that time, the Jews had reconstructed a brand new temple, they built their own houses. And they were beginning to assimilate into the land once again. And I thought, maybe they're assimilating too much. Maybe they seem to be doing too much, and Ezra's going to find this out. So when Ezra arrives, he's met with disturbing news. The spiritual condition of the community is really in bad shape. They had failed to keep God's command to come out and be separate They were supposed to separate themselves from the pagan nations that were surrounding them. God had called them to be a special people. He called them to come out. He called them to his own. They would be his people, and he would be their God. To the point that this commingling with the outside pagan nations resulted in intermarriages. This was directly and strictly against the word of God. This was directly against the word of God. If you remember last time we talked, God had called Israel to a holy life. He wanted them to come out from the pagan nations and be separate. He wanted them to be a special people, worshiping him alone. He wanted to be the priority of their life. He knew what would happen if the children of Israel commingled and married into these pagan families and these nations. He knew that they would eventually forsake him and begin to worship these foreign gods. How did he know that? It happened before. They're repeating the same mistakes. Ezra, much to his shock, found out that even some of the priests and Levites were guilty of marrying these pagan women. When Ezra found out about this, he became distraught. In an act of sheer disgust and with a broken heart, he tore his clothes in front of the people. He he ripped out 
the hair of his head and his beard. And he sat down and he was totally astonished. It's almost like, how could this happen? Maybe when he returned, he had thoughts of a community totally sold out to God. Maybe he thought he was coming back to a nirvana, so to speak, where everybody was worshiping God and everything was peachy cane jelly bean and everything was wonderful. It didn't seem to be the case. He thought that maybe they were living under God's guidance and they were obeying his laws and they were keeping his commands. I mean, after all, he was the one that brought them out of captivity. They worshiped in the temple that they had built. They even sacrificed, but they were living in sin. They were living in sin. Ezra might have remembered that it was the idolatry that led them into captivity first, but anyhow, he was so distraught. He was so upset. The only thing he can do, which is the best thing he could do, is fast and pray. He fasted and he prayed. After he fasted, he went into the temple and he prayed to the Lord God, Jehovah. And everyone who trembled at the words of God came with him. So there was a group who still held true to the word of God. And you're going to find out later that this happening against God was only a small percentage, probably only about 1% of the people. And if you count the names, about 144 people are doing this thing. But let me remind you, God was really angry with Achan, one person, after they sacked Jericho. They weren't supposed to take anything because everything belonged to the Lord. Achan hid some stuff in his tent that belonged to Jericho, and God found out about it. They went to Ai, and they were beat. They got the snot kicked out of them. They came home, and God said there's sin in the camp. One man caused them to falter. One man caused the whole nation to sin. And you know that's sort of how the story ends. It doesn't end well for Achan. So here, even though it's a very, very minute amount of people doing these things, the whole nation is held responsible. The whole nation is held responsible. So everybody gets into this temple worship, and Ezra prays. I'm going to read Ezra's prayer in chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. I think it's important that we listen to the way Ezra prayed. And I said, remember, Ezra is the author. Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Notice, he's talking our sin. I'm ashamed. He, he, he really has taken this to heart. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation, as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. God was reviving them. A great revival was happening here. But some people were not following God's law. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Now he's charging and saying what's going on here which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore, 
Do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. He's remembering God's grace. We could have had this, but you did this. We should have deserved this, but you didn't do it to us. Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant, as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. In this prayer, once again, you'll find Ezra identified with his people. He wasn't accusatory. They sinned. They did this. They did that. No, he said, we did this. He took ownership because he was the scribe. He was the one that came and wanted to teach them the word of God. He was humiliated. He was ashamed. But he spoke of the grace of God that had brought them out of captivity. They were slaves, yet God didn't forsake them. That's a but God statement. But God didn't forsake them. They were slaves, just like we were slaves to sin. But God didn't forsake us either. While we were yet sinners, he sent Jesus Christ to the cross so that we could be freed from that slavery, so we could be freed from the bondage. Same thing's happening here. God extended his mercy He extended his grace and guided them on their four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. So Ezra's humiliation was the start of restoration for the people. And as he prayed, people joined in. And now, as we come to chapter 10, we see a very large assembly had formed. Let's look at verse 1. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, Weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for people wept very bitterly. The power of Ezra's confession was not merely in words. You saw this over in chapter 9. It was from the depth of his heart. It caused him great consternation. It caused him to howl and weep and bow before the house of God and bow before God. As he prayed, he confessed. He humbled himself on behalf of the people publicly before this large assembly. Sometimes I think we underestimate our prayers. Sometimes I think we underestimate our prayers for a group. Don't underestimate your prayer, even if you're the only one praying. Never underestimate your prayer because God is looking to and fro throughout the land for someone who he can show himself strong, who has a heart towards him. God is always looking. He's always on the lookout. Every single great revival, every single great revival in the history of revivals started with one person praying, one person getting themselves clean before God. And that's how revivals start. And here you see Ezra praying and praying and praying. There's power in prayer. Even if it's just one dedicated believer who prays without ceasing. Ezra wept and prayed and was joined by the great assembly and they wept and prayed. They were weeping and praying. Notice their response was not worked up by Ezra. It came naturally as they recognized their sin. It came from a broken and contrite heart. In beautiful Psalm 51, in verse 17, David writes this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. God knows the heart. God looks upon the heart. 
This was true repentance. This was heartfelt repentance. This wasn't just being sorry because they got caught. God knows the difference. God knows the difference in your heart. This was heartfelt repentance. This shows that the people were also struck by the conviction of their sin, and they felt the need to confess it. They felt the need to repent. This is an act of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is pouring his heart out upon these guys and telling them, you've done wrong before the Lord, you need to repent, and you need to change your ways. And here, they're going to get a chance. God could have just wiped them out. He could have taken them out. That's what Ezra played. Are you going to wipe us out, and it won't be a remnant? God could do that. But here, God's going to give them a chance to rectify the situation. They sorrowed over their sin. They were a covenant community, and they sorrowed just like Ezra did. I want to remind you of one thing that I have found through my time in ministry, whether it be as a pastor or as an elder in another church. Tears don't always mean repentance. Tears don't necessarily mean godly sorrow. You know, sometimes tears are killer. Somebody starts to cry and we melt. We get all, oh my God, you know. Tears don't necessarily mean godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, can you can well up in tears. You can well up in wailing if it's truly godly in you. The heart. God knows your heart. God knows the heart. When James was writing his epistle, he told us to weep and mourn over our sin. Look at James 4 in verses 9 and 10. He says this, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We need to be sorrowful about our sin, yes. It needs to be a true sorrow. Not sorrow that we got caught, but a true sorrow. A man steps forward to become the spokesperson for the group. His name is Shechaniah. We can see him in verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. I love his words. I really like this guy's words. He didn't come in there and lamb blast them either. He didn't come in there and make them all accusing things. He said, there's hope in Israel. He knew God. And if you know God, there's always hope. If you know God through Jesus Christ, there's tons of hope in your life, tons of hope in your life. Yes, we've trespassed against our God, but there is hope. Why? Because where there is confession, there is always hope. Where there is confession, there is always hope of forgiveness. John wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where there is confession, there is always hope. Shechaniah recognized the severity of their sin, and yet he also knew that their present brokenness over sin was a work of the Holy Spirit. And it was an emblem up to God. And God can see that. God can see when you are truly sorry. And thus the reason for hope in Israel was in spite of all this. In spite of what they've done, there was still hope. It's interesting that Ezra didn't suggest it. It came from one of them. And I think this is very important. They recognized their sin. Shechaniah stood up and took responsibility and became the spokesperson. And they realized this. They action, come on. Perhaps Ezra was so deeply troubled over what had happened. I don't know. We're not sure. Maybe he couldn't think about what was going on. Perhaps Ezra knew what to do, but knew that the suggestion had to come from the community instead of from himself. Because after all, he was a newcomer to Jerusalem. They'd been there for a long time. He was a newcomer. What's also interesting, what's also interesting, turn over to verse 26. 
in chapter 10. The sons of Elam, that's Shechaniah's family. Shechaniah's father was one of them who had committed this horrible act. So Shechaniah was not covering for his dad. Sometimes we could become very partial to our families. We want to cover up from them. He could have defended his father's sin. Sometimes we get caught up between a relative sin and the Lord. We need to be careful which side you're on here. We need to be very careful. Shechaniah stands up. Maybe he remembered what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6 about judging partiality. Paul also mentions to Timothy regarding the church in 1 Timothy 5, 21. I charge you for God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. God is not a God of partiality. God treats everyone the same. God looks at everyone the same. And that's what's happening here. Shechaniah is looking out, even though his dad is guilty. He's looking out for the big picture. He's looking out to God who doesn't look at partiality. God doesn't do that way. So Shechaniah says, I have a plan. Ezra must be feeling pretty good by now. Well, if he has a plan, let's run with it. Let's go. He says, I have a plan. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, and for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Wow. Talk about something hard. Talk about being given a hard command by God. Wow, this is hard. It was a simple plan, but it was extremely demanding. It was extremely demanding. The nation would have to make a commitment by covenant to obey God's law. They would all have to come together and say, yes, we're going to do this. Notice whose responsibility it was. Theirs. They said, it's your responsibility. For this matter is your responsibility. Wow. They had to obey God. Sometimes when we make a covenant with God, we are required to do hard things. But we must act accordingly when called by the Lord. These are hard verses. These are hard to reconcile what is happening here. God wanted them to do something. But there's going to be an out for some of them. There's going to be an out for someone. And for some reason, as I read this, I, I went to a verse that people have trouble with. I went to a verse that people have trouble with, and they hear this word, and they kind of shudder, especially when it comes from the Lord. In Luke 14, in verse 26, Jesus is talking about following him. He's talking about following him, and he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's hard. That's hard. If you take it for what you look at, I can, wait a minute. Hate my mom and dad? Hate my bros? My sis? Hate them? My children? Hate them? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, unless I am your top priority, you can have none of me. He's not saying hate your siblings. He's not saying hate your wife, hate your mother, hate those people. He's not saying that. He's saying, put me, God, as the top priority of your life. You can't let other things take priority in your life that God should have. He should be preeminent. He should be the top of the list. He should be the top of the list. It goes for husbands and wives. Husbands, you should be number two in your wife's list with God first. Wives, you should be number two in your husband's list with God first. 
God is always first in all situations. And that's what's happening here. God needed to be first in their life. They weren't following the commandments. What God has said we must do. It's a divine imperative, though it seems cruel and harsh. It's a divine imperative. And as I said, sometimes God's asked us to do hard things. Be obedient sometimes is difficult. It was up to Ezra and those who trembled at the commandment of God, but everything had to be done according to the law. Everything had to be done according to the law. They had to do this thing. They had to come together. Ezra accepts the plan and asks the Levites and priests to investigate the matter. Now, remember I said some of the Levites and priests are just as guilty. Now, let's look at 5 and 6. Then Ezra rode and made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoiakim and son of Ishlabib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from captivity. So Ezra was still so upset and he's still fasting. And he wants to just really have this a good outcome here. He goes and he continues mourning and fasting. He's praying for God's guidance. He doesn't act hastily. He doesn't do a spur-of-the-moment thing. He waits upon God. The proclamation is issued, 7 and 8. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judea and Jerusalem to all the descendants of captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. And whoever would not come in three days, according to these instructions of the leaders and elders, all the property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from captivity. People of all Jerusalem and the outlying areas have to come and appear. They're going to take a census. They're going to find out who is doing these things. They all want them here. You're going to have to confess in front of everybody. What's good here is they're all working together for a common cause. They're trying to get back on track as a community to the Lord. They're trying to get back and let God be their leader. They're following Ezra's lead of humility. Remember, Ezra humbled himself. Ezra bowed before the Lord and he prayed and gave supplication. This took enormous courage of all these people to come in. It took enormous courage for them to come in. We look at 9 through 17, we see the gathering and what comes of the gathering. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twelfth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives according to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from your pagan wives. Then all the assembler answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, we must do. Notice the must. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and the judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us this matter. You are sure. Ezra 6, 19-20 says, On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all of the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. 
The Feast of Passover was a reminder of God rescuing His people from Egypt and a foreshadowing of when Jesus would die to rescue all of us from sin and death. It's so fitting that the people would celebrate Passover when God stepped in to rescue them from oppression once again. I love the incredible way that God showed us in a million different ways through all the stories and all the feasts that His plan was always to rescue you and I. You've been listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank. Pastor Dave is opening up the book of Ezra for us and showing us all the ways that this book points to Jesus Christ. I'm so glad you've been here with us today. I hope you'll return again for when Pastor Dave continues through Ezra. In the meantime, we'd like to invite you to come visit in person. A Sure Hope is a ministry out of Calvary Chapel, Cape May, in Cape May, New Jersey. You can find out more about this on our website, assurehoperadio.com. Our service times and directions are listed there, as well as links to our live stream on Facebook and YouTube for anyone who can't make it in person. Well, that's all we have for today. We'll be back with more next time as Pastor Dave shares all the ways Ezra shows us a sure hope. You've